G'day, I'm Steve Bell, and welcome back to episode two of Rewind's 20-year trip back in time to explore Since I Left You, the incredible debut album by Melbourne outfit The Avalanches. We recommend that if you haven't checked out the first episode, that you pause here and go back to the start, because that way what we're about to discuss next will make a lot more sense. Much of episode one took place in the back end of the 90s, as the avalanches formed organically from the ashes of noise group Alarm 115 and embarked on a new adventure, one which would in time take them from their Melbourne bedrooms to charts and stages all around the world. When we left them, things were going swimmingly. The band working towards their debut album during an intense 18-month period that found bandmates Robbie Chater and Darren Seltman in particular, diving deep into the sampling world some knew as plunderphonics, the genre where tracks are constructed by sampling recognisable works, although not all of the Avalanche's samples were easily recognisable, as we'll soon discover. The album, by now announced as having the title Since I Left You, is due in September 2000 on Steve Pav's new label Modular. Robbie and Darren, in their production guise of Bobby Dazzler, have been working with young engineer Tony Espy on the mixing stage of proceedings, melding the 3,500 samples that the band have accumulated, mainly from unwanted vinyl records sourced from Melbourne op shops and record stores, into one cohesive piece of uplifting music, the 18 songs stitched into one gorgeous, free-flowing suite. Espy, however, because of the unusual nature of the project, admits finding the whole thing somewhat daunting. Even working on dance records, it was still like a whole lot of individual sounds that all had to be mixed together to create a finished product, whereas this um, uh, was like it was treating samples that had already been treated before, that already had been processed, had effects added, had been mixed and mastered before, right? So then they're, then they're now being taken out of that context and put in with a whole bunch of other stuff that's all been mixed and mastered and had other effects and all that on it from its from its creation and then it's on the record. So it was a matter of, and there were hundreds of these sounds, of course, you know, so it was a matter of getting them all into the mix um, and making them sort of work together as much as possible. Um, but I guess sometimes when they didn't quite work together, that's again what gave it its beauty and an off-kilteredness. Um, so it's not all perfect and, and everything lined up perfectly. It's sometimes it's just, it's, you, you sort of massage all these sounds until they lock and then you just leave it because they're, they're all working together and somehow it's got the special feeling going on and to, to, to change one of them or take one of them out or put one back louder or whatever would change the feeling. So um, so we had to sort of uh, figure out how we were going to do it and, and it basically we ended up going, getting all the sounds from the samplers which is how they composed it and putting it onto a computer. But at that point, we're talking about early days of computer recording, and it was Pro Tools 1 we were using. <laughs> but and now we're on 15, whatever, 2021. Um, and so it was very rudimentary, and it didn't sound very good. Um, but but that was the way, that was the only way we were going to better physically do it, because the other option was to put it onto tape and stuff like that, but that would just take even, much, even longer. Um, so we had to sort of get it into the computer at the end of the day. Um, but then the final mixes were done through the desk, not just on a computer, because that in back then you couldn't do it on a computer. You could record okay onto a computer, but you couldn't really do a good mix on a computer. So it was all pushed back through the desk again. Um, and in some cases, 
twice. So it was kind of mixed once and then separated again and then pushed through a different different desk, getting a bit technical here, um, and to, to, just to find the sweet spot because there was a sweet spot for this music and it was just kind of coming up with that and then everything else working around it. Um, so it was trying to make songs like Since I Left You sit next to Frontier Psychiatrists, you know, which were radically different. Um, but we just had to sort of keep sort of chipping away and massaging until until they they just kind of work together. All these all these disparate sounds from all different eras and records and all that sort of stuff. So and some of them were lo-fi, some of them were hi-fi. Um, so it was all a matter of just filtering the hi-fi ones to, to make them fit with the lo-fi ones and then trying to clear up the lo-fi ones a bit to make them fit with the clearer ones and all that sort of thing. So um, so I think it was like, it was a combination of them having a vision for it and also um, kind of making it up along the way as well. You know what I mean? So it was a beautiful combination of them having this sort of idea in their head of what it wanted to be, but then um, letting it ebb and flow and go off into different directions by itself um, and not trying to control it too much because then it would just, it, it would become too just sort of linear and they wanted it to be, you know, lots of things sort of surprising you and jumping and and you know, cutting off at the unexpected times and all that sort of thing. So, um, so you know, I think we, we basically winged it because um, it was we were doing something that hadn't really been done and uh, in that kind of complex manner. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was it, it it was an ongoing sort of daily surprise at <laughs> what would come <laughs> out kind of thing. You know, we were never really sure how they were going to end up until they ended up. I guess when you're working with no rules like that, there's a lot of intuition, isn't it, to know when you've got the vibe right and when you're finished. That's either. right, exactly. And a lot of times we didn't know until we. I remember at the end of every day, I'd make up a few CDs and we'd, I'd give pass it around, mainly to uh, Robbie and Darren, um, and everyone would go home and listen. And and sometimes things you'd hear things at home that you wouldn't hear in the studio, um, which I, which is still the case now um, with everything I also work on. I prefer people to hear it at home than in the studio, really, because that's where you know what's really happening. Um, so, yeah, we uh, everyone went home with their CDs each night and come back with comments the next morning. And um, we sort of, I think we got more clarity by doing that than just everyone sitting around the studio sort of thing. So, hmm. um, yeah, so that kind of worked really well. And I've still got, I've still got, like, dozens of CDs of, you know, take-home mixes from over, I think we did it in six weeks, which seems like nothing now compared to like Wildflower, which was, <laughs> it was years. Um, but, yeah, so I've still got the cassette, the original cassette and all that stuff too. So it's, um, it's, it's, it still sounds good. <laughs> awesome. I was going to ask how long it took. So six weeks is a pretty short period of time. Was that? Pretty yeah. deep dive, though. Were you intense in that period? Pretty much, yeah. It was pretty much every day, um, and long, some long days, and uh, um, you know, it went from the, the in the studio. It was like went from just me and Tony and Robbie and Darren um, to the older boys being there. Um, so it went from kind of like calm to chaos. Um, so it was kind of calm-ish working with Robbie and Darren, 
and then chaos when the boys were all coming together. <laughs> um, they, would, they would literally be bouncing off the walls, bouncing <laughs> off the walls. They were so kind of revved up and excited and wild and just unhinged. So we'd have like this mad kind of dancing sessions and stuff like that and then be like, okay, you got to go, everyone go, 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 and just let me and Robbie or me and Darren sit there and work for hours and hours and hours chipping away at it. So, um, but it was good because then they came in and they revved us all up and we'd go and play basketball or stuff like that. And um, it was pretty loose, to tell you the truth, pretty loose. Um, and they, they, were, they were pretty wild kids back then. <laughs> which made it we made it fun but but you know it was not easy sometimes because of just uh just a lot of stuff happening <laughs> around you kind of thing so um but it's the sort of stuff like would never happen now in the studio you'd never be given studio time to kind of party it just just no it's over gone <laughs> <laughs> so um, but, you know, like some of the vibe of the record came about because of that, you know, because of that sort of approach. Because um, when you listen to it now, it sounds, it's, it's, it sounds beautiful, but it sounds really wild, you know. It still sounds like quite adventurous, um, uh, which is great after all these years yeah. that it can still have that effect, you know. Tony mentioned there the early version of Pro Tools they were using. But you've got to remember that 20 years ago, everything they were using was primitive, even if some of it had been high-tech at some stage, as Robbie recalls. Well, we thought they were amazing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, though, so we were uh, when we began, it was an Akai S900 sampler, and then I think since I left you, was, we were using Akai S2000 samplers. So they just sort of sit on your desktop. Um, and we had we would sit a, a turntable on top of one of them, and that that's all all we would use. And there would just be piles and piles of floppy disks, and you would go from there. And it's interesting because in terms of workflow, like they they don't have a screen, like they're not computer based. So you're not actually you're just seeing a few numbers, and all you're doing really is listening. And it's a completely different way of working to how you work now, where you know you see every sample laid out on your on your laptop in front of you. So. Um, yeah, there was, there was something about them that had a really particular sound and a really beautiful sort of crunchy sound. And I just became incredibly like good at just using that one piece of equipment and that's all I had and, I, and that's all I needed really. So the band is triumphing over both rudimentary technology and the fact that they were pretty much traversing uncharted waters, founding Avalanche Tony de Blasi explaining that the eventual vibe of Since I Left You was also starting to emerge amidst the drawn-out process. I think that just kind of came together. Um, you know, eventually it kind of came up with this travel travel theme, but it was almost just like the also the records that you were collecting and having those little samples that you're like, okay, there's that flat two tools up to Honolulu. And, and also just, just like finding all those... Like I said, those exotica records that were, were like, you know, Hawaiian holiday and Fiji interpretations. Of, there, there was so many cover, like weird, weird like bands covering pop hits and stuff like that or, or kind of old classics. And um, I think that just came naturally as, as the record progressed along. It's pretty. It's pretty incredible the way it came along, and 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 on. You know, in all honesty, Robbie was just kind of like on fire at the time. He just um, 
you know, it's well known, came out of rehab and it, just, it was just like he just had this spirit of life, um, you, you know, of like almost having a, a near-death experience and kind of really, you know, finding everything just so much more wonderful and, you know, like we said about COVID, you know, taking things for granted. It's like maybe taking life for granted. We can do that quite easily until you get to a position where, so he was just full of energy and full of like, you know, and this this amazing joy and everything. And I think that really comes across in in a lot of the production that he was doing and um, and putting it all together. And, um, yeah, I always just think, you know, that song, Since I Left You, I Found the World So New and kind of like him recovering from alcohol and, and finding the world so new. And that just means so much. Like I interpret that in, in a different way of, of like, you know, what I think about him and, and how he came out of that, that you know, close to death kind of experience. Robbie's battle with the bottle during his teenage years is well publicised, but he's still remarkably forthright when it comes to discussing how much his triumph over personal demons contributed to the eventual euphoric feel of Since I Left You. At the time, I wasn't, you know, you can't kind of process this stuff with clarity, but now looking back, I can definitely see that that in a lot of ways is the story of Since I Left You and why it sounds the way it does. So I'd, I'd had a terrible time uh, with alcohol from a very young age and um, never just drank normally. Like we were a really hard drinking band and bunch of kids, but I was always just, I would, I would drink every day and in the mornings and around, you know, around the clock from a very young age. And so by the time I was 20, I was very, very, very sick. I was drinking, you know, it, you know, you progress to spirits and that's all I would drink around the clock. And I, I, my tolerance for alcohol was so high that I could still function like that. Um, but of course it was taking a terrible toll of my body. And when I tried to stop, I didn't, I didn't know anything about how dangerous it can be to just stop drinking. You know? And um, I, I had a withdrawal seizure uh, when I was 20 or 21 and ended up in intensive care for a long time. And they thought I kind of, I wouldn't make it. And um, when I came out of that period and got well again, uh, since I left, you just came pouring out. And it was like that, I mean, to answer your earlier question, that's probably, you know, was a huge fork in the road of, and, a, and, a, and a dividing line between the earlier chaotic part of our musical output and then this pure expression of just sort of love and joy. I was just so happy to be free of this nightmare that I'd been stuck in for years. Um, and it's just so happy to be alive. And every every part of being alive felt so precious and beautiful. And this record just, just it's that's why it sounds like, that's what I hear when I listen to it again today. You know? The fact that Darren and Tony's friendship predated the band and can be traced back to their high school days in country Victoria can't be underestimated. It allowed Tony to realise when the Endless Party was getting too much for his mate and help him get back on his feet before it was too late. Oh, it was it was amazing, and it was like, you know, f- for us back then, we'd all drink. We were, you know, it's like you said, we were raucous. We were, you know, and it was back in the days where you're smoking on stage. You know, you could do whatever you want. It was, 
everyone drinking. There were just half-empty bottles of Melbourne that we didn't know whose was whose was what. So you'd just be drinking that one, and and it just it was just pretty wild and crazy. So when he got really bad, it was kind of an eye-opener of of education of oh, alcohol can kill you. We we just thought, who knows that? Like that's not an education that we had back then. So it was. You know, pretty amazing seeing him in hospital, and and I've never seen anyone like that. He was just, you know, when he was detoxing, shaking, and could barely move and talk. And I'm like, fuck, is this what alcohol does to you? It was, it was incredible, and and a real like, you know, um, just eye opener as to how much you care about someone as well when they're in that that position and. It was so cool, like, you know, like he said when he went into, after the detox, went into this month of rehab and he's like, you know, bring me, bring me, uh, uh, can you bring me the sample? And I remember him calling me up, like, it was like a couple of days, I think, after he got to this rehab and he was like, I need to come home. Can you come pick me up? Come pick me up. I was like, no, I can't, I can't. So it was like kind of that last thing of him just, I think, trying to escape and and because which is quite an alcoholic thing to do is, is, you know, plead and uh, just to get back to, to wanting to drink. But, but yeah, I, I think after that he was like, okay, can, well, just bring me a sample so I can make music. Bought him in and, a, a sample and then visited, you know, he'd come visit on Sundays, I think it was, and then um, the next Sunday I went and visited him and, and he was like, oh, listen to this. And he had kind of the start to the, the radio song that ended up being on since I was like, wow, this is so cool. This is amazing. Like, good on you, man. And... Um, I think as that went along, like you had a few more things going, so so it was great. Like he was literally starting that record in, you know, in rehab. Yeah, it's it's awesome that you turned such a horrible experience into this euphoric, beautiful bit of art. Yeah, it, it's incredible. I, I I really do love that whole aspect of it. It's like it's you know from from the depths of darkness to you know light and joy and all these wonderful positive kind of things it's just what you know whenever you think of of someone who's been down and you know you want people to um learn something from that experience i feel like it's like just such a perfect turnaround of you know don't worry things can look dark now but look at what can happen it's it's a really it's a great story it really is so far so good since I left you is nearing completion and is threatening to be a groundbreaking triumph. But remember how we talked in episode one about how this was the Wild West era of sampling and that the field was relatively unregulated? Well, things were changing. With technology evolving at a rapid speed, sometimes the law is forced to adapt really quickly to keep up. You've got to remember that despite their modular deal, the avalanches were pretty much still unknowns at this point and were constructing their opus in their bedrooms with little expectation of it finding mass circulation. But the 3,500 samples they'd collected all had copyright issues attached to them, and as Robbie admits, this fact hadn't been on their radar at all. Yeah, it honestly wasn't on the radar, and it, it, it was, it was a, like a, a beautiful once-off situation where nobody knew who we were like like i I think we had like uh a presence on the live scene in australia but we certainly hadn't made any recordings that had blown people away um so we kind of had this attitude of like well no one's going to be really listening to it anyway it's certainly not going to find an international audience so we can just sample whatever we want we 
we were free in that way and, and obviously we've never been in that situation again but it was wonderful because we it was just pure creativity and the problems came later when people in the UK in particular started to really uh, gravitate towards the album and it was going to get a wider release we had to kind of backtrack and start clearing samples but I'm so glad that it got to be made in that spirit of discovery and and you know we just didn't have to worry about it didn't have to think about it now, copyright law can be a tricky and complicated beast. Trust me, I practiced law for a while, and it became a minefield pretty quickly for the avalanches. They were now forced to clear all of the samples before the album could be released, the readily recognisable ones at any rate, but they hadn't really catalogued them properly because why would you if you weren't thinking like a lawyer? Robbie remembers having to go back to the coalface to help minimise the damage. We had to dive back in and it was endless and it is with every record we've made since. It's like, where's this sample from? And we would have to find the records and write out the sheets and all the publishing information. And so we still do that very in a very hands-on way and then give details about what set, what snippet we used and where it occurs in our song and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we had a few problems because back then, you know, the samplers we used were so rudimentary. We were sampling. The samples were all saved on floppy disks. So if we didn't label a disk correctly, which often we didn't, we, we, we couldn't find the sample sometimes. So, and it would just be on one of thousands of junk store records and we could never find it again, you know. So it was, it was like months of going back through everything and trying to find where it was all from. And then um, we got uh, introduced to a wonderful lady called Pat Shanahan who cleared all the samples for Since I Left You and, and on our subsequent records. And she was known as the detective. And she had, I think she'd worked in for Ireland back in the 70s, Ireland Records, and then had gone out on her own just as purely as, like she was the first person that said, I'm gonna start a business just clearing samples. And I think she did like Ice T's first solo record and the Beck records and the Beastie Boys records and she kind of knew everyone in the business and she came on board and helped us to start clearing the samples. But since I left you and often it would be, her job would be to just find a family who maybe um, had inherited the, the, the estate of someone's uh, album that they'd made, you know, decades before and this, this family would not even know that they owned the rights to this record and she would somehow track them down and say, hey, you own this, we want to sample it is that okay, you know, you'll get paid and all that kind of thing. And um, it's a fascinating process. Would you have gone so deep if you knew you had to go back and do all that? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> 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 I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Tony de Blasi is also effusive in his praise of Pat Shanahan, the late sample clearing expert from the States who helped the band eventually clear most of the samples from Since I Left You, her hard work saving the avalanches from their understandably cavalier approach. I remember at the time we didn't really care about any of that. It was just like, let's just do whatever we can and then leave it up to the record company. Or, you know, I'm sure at the time we just would have been going, don't worry about it, just put it out. No one will know. No one will care. Who cares? Where obviously the, the record company have a whole different attitude to that thing. And even, you know, Modular back then was quite loose that had just started and you know perhaps quite a, a, a well loose person in that he's he's pretty freewheeling as well he's not you know mr play by the rules and all that kind of stuff so but, but we obviously did have to clear a lot of that and and we had um 
a lady called so so called Pat Shanahan, who she'd done the Beastie Boys and Ice Tea, and so she was this like old lady, sixties or seventies or something like that, and had worked at Island Records and had been in the business for a long time. So she kind of found this niche where, you know, when samples were starting to be cleared in the the eighties, that uh, these people in record companies were saying it cost too much money to go through lawyers to do this because lawyers were having to clear samples so they're doing lawyer like rates to do this kind of admin admin stuff and so that's how she got into it someone just asked her and she was like oh, I think I can create my little niche in this and she was one of the first two people to do it um, and obviously with all her contacts through years in the business she could get things done that that a lawyer wouldn't be able to do too because you know they don't have the musical contacts so she's like I know the publisher of this I'll go and talk to you I've known him for years so she'd be able to get things over the line that you know probably other people wouldn't uh, be able to get it cheaper do all that stuff so she was remarkable and you know she did all of Since I Left You and did all of Wildflower and did you know a lot of We'll Always Love You but but we had the EMI lawyers and everything helping because it was just so just to get everything done in time but but you know without her it, it, it wouldn't happen she was she was amazing yeah, and she just passed away like last year, so that's that's a shame. Yeah, I've read a lot about Pat. She seems like an amazing woman. She was great. She yeah. and she had this amazing voice. Oh, Tony, you know, I I remember when I I cleared this sample for Ice Tea and just like this this old lady talking about her relationship with Ice Tea and like, oh NWA and you're like <laughs> this is it just doesn't feel right. But but she was cool. She was so awesome and. Um, you know, we'd get on Skypes with her and talk about stuff. And it was always a pleasure. She she always had just great stories. It was one of those just, you know, the classic kind of, I don't know, 60s, 70s to the 80s label exec who really was involved in that great time of music and had so many good stories and, and was just a, a music person and, um, and, and just loved what she did and being part of it all. Funnily enough, some of the more recognisable samples from big songs, such as the blatant lifting of the bass line from Madonna's Holiday on the album track Stay Another Season. were able to be cleared with relatively little problem, while some other more random samples, like snippets from old Rogerson and Hammerstein records, proved more problematic, with the copyright owners not yet realising the money to be made from their intellectual property, as Tony continues. At the time, I remember the, the Madonna sample was famously like, she's never cleared a sample before. It's, it's not going to happen. And somehow, I'm not sure if it was... So this might have been like, oh, I can't remember, but it's like Richard Russell from Excel or this is where you get the big wigs to kind of go who have got contacts and I think he knew her agent or something like that. So it's kind of getting to them through that way. But 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 back then people weren't quite kind of aware of what um, 
samples were. So the people, the Rogers and Hammerstein people were like, well, I'm not letting you use my recording. This is ridiculous. Like, why would I do that? And, and so it wasn't, um, it wasn't a known art form back then. Um, so, so it was, it, it was a lot harder to kind of explain to people what this was. Whereas as it went along, people were like, ah, this is just a way to get, I can just get money out of this as well and get royalties and another form of income. So it became a lot easier as it, as it went along with those type of companies and publishers and all that stuff. I mean, we've been really lucky because obviously you can't clear three and a half thousand samples. It's, it, it would take 20 years just to do that. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, there are certain things that it's just something that it, like hi-hats or, or a little, just a little thing that no one's ever going to recognise. I mean, we, we just have to kind of take a little bit of a risk with that and, and you know, it, it is as it got bigger overseas, we'd be like, oh, you know, maybe something will come out. But we've been... We've been really lucky with that, um, and I think it's because all the all the just the big chunks that you recognise, we have gone about clearing and and doing the right thing with all that. Tom Larnick Jones, whose indie trifecta records had put out the Avalanche's first single, Rock City, remembers that the legalities of Sample hadn't really been on his radar at that early stage either. There was bands I used to love in the I guess early noughties who were doing sampling. No kind of bands like Jesus Jones and Populate itself, they were kind of my first experience with that. And I guess, you know, hip hop has had lots of sampling as well. Um, but as far as the legalities of it go, um, I think we didn't really know um, much about it. And I think, I think there's even a Beastie Boys sample on Rock City. Um, so we definitely didn't do everything above board there. Um, I think we, yeah. So I guess it was kind of, it really wasn't until uh, I'm, I'm sure that would be a similar case with El Producto and that's probably why it's not available now. Um, but, yeah, I guess the band, once they made, you know, since I left you, definitely had a bigger team behind them than me and just me and Tim um, and were, um, you know, being above board and legit with all those things. Yeah, I, I, think it's, I, mean, I think it's quite different to sampling, like when we talk about Popular Itself or Jesus Jones, they were kind of putting you know, obvious, sticking obvious things on top of live instruments um, or maybe creating a loop with something where I feel like, you know, um, since I left you, it seems to be more like a, a tapestry or something that's really woven together. Um, and, you know, the samples are the whole thing, not just the, the obvious thing, the obvious layer on top. The whole thing is just a, a bed of, you know, this intricate kind of work. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I hadn't heard a record, a sampled record like that before. Linda Besides, these days managing director of Mushroom Music Publishing, but back then their head of A&R, remembers that her status as friend and fan of the band had almost dragged her into the whole sorry sample clearance saga. So I was working in music publishing and I had some experience in clearing samples and negotiating a copyright percentage. I I'd, I'd had, you know, maybe a handful um, it was always difficult, though, because, you know, if the song was well known or if the artist was well known, it could take 12 months or more or never to get a response and a, approval. But it was a, you know, a, a different time. We were also exploring. We were pioneers um, in this area. But, yeah, we were, it was definitely new, new ground that we were breaking. 
in the clamp in in the uh, sorry in the sample clearance area. So um, I think it was around 2000, and they were close to finishing the debut album since I left you, but I hadn't heard it yet. Um, and I was having lunch with Robbie and Darren and Tony and their then manager, Bernadette Ryan. We were in Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. And they were talking about the sample usage in the album. And as I worked um, in publishing in A&R, Mushroom Music Publishing, and as a friend, I offered to help clear the recognisable song uh, samples on the songwriting side. Um, and the label um, would have cleared the, you know, the master recording side. So... I don't know. I was young, careless and naive. I was, I was, you know, excited about the challenge. Um, but I didn't realise, you know, what I was getting myself into. So without hearing the record, I started a manila folder with sheets of A4 paper, which had sample usage information on it. And um, these samples were to be cleared and Robbie would continually pass on, you know, more and more samples. Um, and I just get a, you know, a bunch of emails or a bunch of, you know, sheets of paper. So I started to send out emails and I began the process. And as the days and weeks went by, that manila folder grew. Uh, it just got to a point where it was clearly impossible for me to do. And I handed it back um, disappointedly. But uh, yeah, I think there was over a thousand plus samples. Um, Pat Shanahan, who was in the US, ended up dealing with it. And I think Robbie nicknamed her the detective, but she was a champion. What a monumental job that would have been. I mean, seriously, I was so overwhelmed. I was doing it um, after hours and I would just sit at work, you know, and sending endless emails. Um, yeah, I realised pretty soon that it was I was never gonna. It was never gonna happen. I was never gonna get it done before the album was released. <laughs> but it's not your fault. Like you weren't to know if you hadn't heard it that you were taking on a challenge that's almost impossible. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And and you know the stuff I'd cleared beforehand was you know a sample on a Honey Smack record, like one sample. I think the Paradise Motel used a four bar drum loop, and I cleared that. So. You know, it was it was uh, not what I was expecting, and neither was anybody else, in terms of you know what that al album would end up sounding like. So the samples are eventually cleared, but it's come at a cost. The album release date pushed back two months in Australia, but delayed even longer overseas, where there are a whole new level of legalities for the band and their team to navigate. The version of Since I Left You, which will come out in foreign markets, is slightly different. With the band unable to clear, or unable to afford clearing, a handful of samples such as a grab of Robert De Niro in Midnight Run, an Ennio Morricone excerpt, and some flute sounds from War's H2 Overture. Some of the stuff they couldn't clear was included on the gimmicks mixtape that the Avalanches sold at shows around this time to counteract the bootlegs which are doing the rounds as the album was delayed. But Tony de Blasi remembers that none of these business concerns had yet overshadowed the actual love of making music. I think about that a lot, that it was it was a very different time. You know, it was like we were still had that innocence about us um, with the record industry. We, we had no experience with it. We'd, you know, we weren't signed back then. We'd kind of met Pav, but he still didn't have a label. Um, 
So that business aspect that becomes like now it is full on. It's like, you know, we do a release and there's a million, and just everything, everyday life is, it's just so much coming at us. And it, it is like, like now we feel like music is a business and that's just the way it becomes when you come, become to a certain level. But that there was back then that innocence of, of um, just doing it and not worrying too much about what it had become. And I don't think anyone was overly ambitious, like, you know, we want to make a great record. It was just we didn't know how it was going to be portrayed or how it was going to do. And we knew it was, you know, good, but, but it was also a bit weird, you know, who knows how it was, how it was going to be received. And how was it going to be received? Another single, Frontier Psychiatrist, was released in Australia in August 2000, featuring prominent vocal samples from a sketch by Canadian comedy duo Wayne and Schuster, as well as scratching from the band's live turntablist DJ Dexter. And this got great traction, only reaching number 49 on the Australian singles chart, but coming in at number 6 on Triple J's Hottest 100 music poll for 2000. So it's nearly time to drop Since I Left You Itself, and no one knows yet how this intense labour of love is going to fare. Will it be embraced by critics and the public, or is it too different to everything else happening in the dance and rock world at the time? They really needn't have worried. Simon Reynolds is a highly respected UK music journalist whose byline has appeared in publications like Melody Maker, Spin, Rolling Stone, Pitchfork, The Guardian, New York Times and countless more, as well as authoring numerous books, including his 2008 tome, Energy Flash, A Journey Through Rave Music and Dance Culture. He's an expert in various fields, including post-punk, glam and even music criticism itself, but his opinion is hugely respected in the dance world, and he was a ravenous early adopter of Since I Left You. Yes, you know, a classic record, and it's sort of like something you can put on anytime you want to elevate your mood. You know, you just put put that record on, and and uh, everything is sparkly and and uh, euphoric. Uh, you know, I mean, it's. It, I think it's a. You know, it's more than just a party record. It's got like bittersweet emotions, and there are slower tracks, but the overall effect is a bit like pumping champagne directly into your bloodstream, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it gives you that sort of tingly, everything's, you know, so, you know, it goes with, the, goes with the theme of the record of, you know, setting out life as an adventure, uh, you're on this journey. Um, that sort of vibe is the vibe of the record, just sort of optimism and, uh, and uh, you know, excitement. Simon's relationship with Since I Left You extends from writing an early gushing 9 out of 10 review for Spin back in 2001, in which he wrote, 
Just as the Inuit have more than 30 words for snow, the avalanche's music revels in a thousand subtle shades of joy. Right through to penning the liner notes for the new 20th anniversary reissue of the album. In both pieces, he was at pains to point out how the euphoric feeling since I left you pedals is largely due to its music existing in the high end of the sonic spectrum. Well, that was the the first thing that struck me when I first heard it was that it was uh, full of this sort of shimmery, trebly sounds, these sort of high end sounds. You know, at the time, a lot of dance music uh, in the late nineties was very much kind of stripped down and and kind of dark, and you know, there's a lot of emphasis on on the bass, you know, and um, this was this, you know, the Avalanche's record just had all these kind of sounds like strings and, and high voices and and sparkly, fizzy sort of sounding disco guitars, like off a chic record or something. Um, so everything seemed to be like an upper. And I think those sounds, those sort of treble sounds, they do kind of um, have that sort of effect of lifting your spirits and elevating your your emotions you know it's sort of like um a kind of instant high or you know very much like like effervescent like a fizzy drink or 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 you know sparkling wine the method champagnois you know it kind of um sort of tickle you almost you listen to the avalanche and you almost feel like your nose is tickling from the, the bubbles you know coming from uh, the bubbly and i think they even have a song that references the bubbly the bubbly is bubbling in me like a little sample so it, 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 it's um yeah the, re- the record is full of these sort of uh optimistic bright sounds you know uh, it's very much a contrast with this moody dance music that a lot of like drum and bass music was about at that time and uh, uh, other kinds of minimal sort of techno and house music at that time it wasn't completely out of sync because at that time also you had other people doing very optimistic celebratory records like it was Daft Punk, who I think the Avalanches were like kind of admired those records. And there was Big Beat as well, and people like Fatboy Slim. So there was a kind of a a tendency that they were sort of riding, but they kind of took it further than anyone else. I mean, you know, the, the sort of shimmery, spangly sound of, of all these sort of samples, uh, you know, the high, you know, the orchestrations and the and the, the guitar parts that sounded like Nile Rogers, you know, no one really crammed as much effervescence into the grooves as the Avalanches did. Tony de Blasi agrees that Since I Left You was slightly out of step with the prevailing dance trends of the day. You know, I guess there was all that, that Chemical Brothers and Daft Punk and a lot of the New York kind of house stuff, and um, which we really love, but, but all very big, you know, clubby kind of stuff. And, and I guess the way Since I Left You was is in the production is that the it's just like what the samples are is the sonic value that it's going to have so if a sample comes along and it's got not not much bass in it then that's the way the bass the bottom end is going to be so you know we weren't trying to fill out the, the sonic scope or anything like that with okay if this one's a bit dull we need to put you know fill out this so so it was very much just sample orientated in and in that way, it was, you know, without adding too much depth and bass and, and beats and all that kind of stuff, like over the top heavy, it, it became this light, it just gave it more of a, a ethereal kind of quality too, I think, that it just became this shimmery, very mid-range, top-endy kind of record. When there was bass, it was cool, but um, 
it just didn't ever have this big boomy bottom end to kind of weigh it down. I think it just kind of made it float a little bit more, which ended up being the kind of aesthetic of the record and um, and how it was. And and it's so cool to li- to listen back now and go, you know, you put it on next to something, a new recording, or <laughs> it just sounds so much different. But as itself, as its own little thing, it just works so well together. Tony continues that since I left you's timeless feel is because it's made from samples which collectively cover a ridiculous array of both eras and genres. I think that is mainly using the samples without, you know, using production techniques at the time, like, you know, putting house drums over something like something, and they would have sounded very 90s or early 2000s or, you know, um, and also just using samples from every genre and, you know, not, not specifically let's just do a 70s funk sample record and kind of like using weird 50s stuff and, you know, 70s lounge music and uh, some little 80s beats. And so, so you're kind of bringing all these different times together um, or, or music from times together that created just this one soundscape that couldn't be... Um, tied down to the time that it was made because it was made from the 50s and it was made from a 30s vocal sample it was made from a 70s loop here and so so that 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 helped with the timelessness um with making it sound like it wasn't from any particular moment in time and i guess the genre hopping aspect of that too i mean it it's obvious you guys have got a pretty broad music taste. Like you must love music from all different fields. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Like everything, it's it's hard to feel. What I, I yeah, I find it a bit weird when people are like, oh, it's it's kind of. I was talking to someone a, a few years ago, and it's like, oh, I, I asked about something, and he said, oh, that that's not really in the genre of music that I like, so can't really comment on it. And I'm like. How can you just be stuck in one genre? And I get that people are just really into hip hop or really into dance music and they won't listen to anyone, anything else. But, you know, I'll listen to, you know, techno or hip hop and I'll listen to country music and classical and jazz. And it's like, I just love good music. And, and we all do. Like, it's just like, whatever is good. Like, good is good. It doesn't have to be a certain genre. There's amazing country records. There's amazing jazz. It's amazing. How can you kind of limit yourself to just one form of music that that you like and you miss, aren't you missing out on so many other, you know, so many joys of, of other genres of music? I just find that really strange. Tony Espy, who helped mix since I left you, also feels that the album sat outside the normal boundaries of what was happening in the dance world at the time. It was, you know, like underneath it, in, in its heart, there's this kind of gentle dance throb kind of thing that's pretty much across all the songs. And some of them don't have it, obviously, but some of them have it much more obviously. So it did have a, a, a house. It was tinged with house. You know what I mean? Like it, it wasn't literally house and it wasn't literally techno. It wasn't literally anything. It was tinged with those things, you know. Um, so I, I, I could hear the the dance element straight away, even though it wasn't like to the fore. It was it was reserved and 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 gentle, kind of in a way, which is what was so attractive about it as well. Because everyone else was just wanting to have it banging, and they were wanted to sort of sort of pull it back in a way, and then 
and let other sounds shine more than just the, the, the dance beat kind of thing. So that's <clears throat> that's what really set it apart, you know, and, and um, the uh, the evolution from El Producto was was pretty staggering, I thought. Um, I was going to ask that. Did, did, were you surprised by that evolution or could you see a sort of... Um, I could see glimpses of it, but I was pretty surprised, yeah, at how melodic Since I Left You is and was and and, um, and how, again, restrained. It wasn't just like everything in your face. So, yeah, it, it, it was still chaotic and kind of ramshackle, but less so, I thought, than El Producto. And more, it was more, you could sort of see... Here it's sort of starting to form its own sound and then coming up with their own signature sound, which they still have really. It's because when, when you play the tracks from the new record, they still, to me, they still sound like the, old, the avalanches. Like it's still got that thing, no matter how much all the new production and this new approach to it all, and it's kind of different, but it's still got the same thing at, at its heart, I think. Um, so, yeah, I was... I was pretty staggered. I said, especially when I heard "Since I Left You," you know, like, you know, I thought this, this, this is they've they've gone somewhere where no where no one else has been, or at least I hadn't heard it, anything like that. So, um, I guess Paul's Boutique was was the only record, and and maybe the first couple of De La Soul records were the only ones that were in that kind of coming in that same place. But again, they were they they incorporated samples, not used samples wholesale. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was a very very big jump, but I could sort of hear the distillation of it a bit earlier, and and them wanting to sort of forge this path away from straight dance music and straight punk rock, you know. But to have the ethos of those things, but with a different sort of sound, different music kind of thing. So, and obviously there's hip hop in there as well too, which at the time you know was. For a bunch of white boys, it was kind of it was it was people were still figuring out how to sort of navigate that road, and you know not to be, you know, culturally um, sort of unaware and, and all that sort of stuff. So um, they managed to sort of again jump into the hip hop world, and because it, it sounded so cool and it just was just easy and fresh, people liked. They couldn't help but like it, even if they were maybe like, oh, it's a bunch of white boys, you know. Um, it didn't matter. It was the feeling that was what mattered, and that's what connected with everyone. And, and, and now, of course, you know, amongst their biggest fans are black hip hop artists. So, um, you know, I think they had their heart in the right place. Simon Reynolds, respected author and Avalanches fan, also believes that since I left you, exists in something of a temporal vacuum. I think you know it wasn't. It wasn't particularly. Um, you know, the, the album wasn't particularly trying to sound like any of the things that were trendy at that time, you know, drum and bass um, or, um, you know, it, it was had a certain affinities with, with the kind of filter disco sound of dark punk and people like that. But really it, was, it, had, it had a kind of timeless quality, I think, you know. Um, you can imagine it being played and un- being understood during the disco era maybe. Because it's, you know, the grooves work on that basic level of you know, up-tempo dance music. But it's, you know, they weren't doing anything that was particularly bound up with the, the fashions and sound, uh, you know, sort of the end of the 90s, early 2000s. And so it hasn't dated. Um, it's sort of going for, you know, there's this stuff that some of the sources come from the 60s and, and the 70s. It's so it's sort of a, a little bit outside time, I think, in a way. 
um, and uh, feels, you know, feels like it's plugged into pop music as well as just Clubland, you know, it sort of touches on a lot of things like the Beach Boys and what people call sunshine pop from the late 60s. Um, uh, again, that sort of trebly thing of the sort of harmonies and the orchestration uh, and these sort of tingly uh, high frequency sounds, you know. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it, there was nothing very, you know, in a, in a weird way, it was perfectly timed, yet it was also timeless uh, and not really being trendy, connected to any particular trends that would have dated it at all. Reynolds also admits being fascinated by the dichotomy between Since I Left You's carefree, breezy vibe and the amount of painstaking work which went on behind the scenes to make it feel so fresh and exciting. But they kind of suffered for our uh, enjoyment and fun, you know, like, it, you know, there was the finding of the records, like digging through all these uh, charity shops, we call them in the UK, I think you call them op shops, right, in Australia, and... Um, Finding all, you know, finding the 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 the, the 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 obscure vinyl and the little, you know, and then sifting through and finding what could be sampled, and then um, and then they had to sort of they had to weave it together into sort of music that made sense, and you know, it was all in key, and and uh, it's like really intense surgery, you know, like kind of um, like gene splicing or something, you know, something that would you know, uh, probably they were damaging their bodies and their eyesight through clicking all, all these samples on the screen and weaving them in and out on a grid. And, and you know, you can imagine them spending 12 hours a day trying to construct these sample symphonies, you know. Um, but in terms of the listener enjoyment, it, you know, it was really worth it, you know. They're, they're suffering. They suffered for our, our fun, I think. <laughs> And there must have been tremendous sense of achievement when you've taken all this raw material and somehow uh, extracted the ecstatic essence of all these records and then woven into them into this tapestry. Uh, there must have been a tremendous feeling of satisfaction, but I'm, uh, I think also the amount of toil it took, you know, the amount of uh, hard, painstaking stitch work to weave all this together, it must it's pretty incredible. What's more interesting to you out of it that, that process or the result or is it sort of both that gives the impact um i think you know i think you, you can tell that there's work been done to it but it never feels labored or like you know it doesn't feel like a, it's not, not 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 doesn't feel like a lot of sort of experimental music that kind of um that you can feel that someone's really you know done a lot of processes and tweak things it's all very resolved and, and realized you know it feels it actually breathes like real music played by you know some fantastical band that includes all you know hundreds of different artists you know and in a way it is a kind of super band they've created like a kind of orchestra all these musicians that are remote in time and space they've kind of taken little elements from them and kind of pull them all into this one magical gathering um, which is, you know, the art of sampling is kind of like time travel. But this is like a whole quantum level above everyone else that was working with sampling at that time. I feel like, you know, the proverbial journey through sound, which is what a lot of DJs talk about, it's going to take you on a journey. Um, but they, they really do, you know, it's, it's, it starts with all this anticipation and, uh, and this sort of feeling of excitement and, and kind of straightforward 
euphoria, but it gets it goes through these sort of sort of more poignant, bittersweet moments. These sort of lulls. The tempo, the party tempo, abates a little bit, and you have uh, tracks that are are more like little little moments of reverie and and uh, and dreaminess. And then you know, and then it's it's you know, you feel like you've been through something when you listen to the album. You know, and it was it's amazing how it works as something to listen to all the way through. You know, it's very much like there are 18 separate songs, but they're all seamlessly woven together. And you, you know, you put it on, you want to hear the whole whole thing. You know, you want to you want to go through that journey. Yeah, it's quite funny in places too, isn't it? I don't think that's talked about. Um, yeah, like frontier psychiatrist is kind of wacky and and cartoony. You know, there's a sort of almost uh, audio slapstick element at times. Um, and there's like uh, I think there's a bit where they're scratching a parrot on a record of the sound of a parrot. It sounds like a parrot anyway. Um, yeah, it's it's funny. It's funny music. I mean, the, some people say human music can't mix or shouldn't mix, but I think this is an example where you know just the sound of the record can make you laugh, uh, as well as um, whatever's going on with the you know specific samples that are quite funny. Uh, um, you know, it's just uh, it's just a light-hearted, uplifting record that uh, makes you smile and laugh. Robbie Chader also believes that humour is an important part of the Avalanche's armory. Since I left, he's really funny in some places. Like there's, but you laugh all the way through. Is, is yeah. humour important in getting that vibe you were trying to build? Yeah, that's. I'm so glad you said that. And um, it was like there's some really key records that that taught us that. Like we were just students of of music, and and like I was saying to you earlier about making connections in your head about things that make sense to you. Well, well when I listen to music, it's like there's weird, trippy 70s, like Frank Zappa stuff that's just um, bizarre. And say Brian Wilson's weird era in the 70s where he would make that song like called Vegetables or something about eating vegetables and they'd all be in the studio make chewing on vegetables and using crunching noises as the rhythm track and all, all that sort of stuff. Like that stuff sounded, had the same heart and feeling to me as like the skits Prince Paul was doing on the first De La Soul album and that kind of carefree humour as well. And so music like that taught us like that humour is just as valuable as emotion in music as sadness or heartbreak or anything else. And so we weren't afraid to have these lighter moments and instead of actually detracting from the deeper feeling on the record, they actually added to it because you get this beautiful contrast and... um, so I'm glad like a song like Frontier Psychiatrist happened because it's just like the record wouldn't be the same without it. It was a great excuse to use thousands of old spoken word records we'd been collecting from Melbourne Junk stores and, and just have really dumb stuff like a parrot noise and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, Tony and I were, would get stoned and go and sample old Western movies like that we'd get on VHS from Blockbuster and try and find the exact right horse, horse noise to use on that on this song and so we're a lot of the time we were just laughing you know and then i remember we found the perfect horse and then it ended up somehow like spreading throughout the album and ended up on about five different songs or something like that (laughs) but that stuff was like you know we still had that mischievous you know sense of of humor and like where can we sneak a horse in that people might not (laughs) notice it or something so it was (laughs) it was it was it was super fun yeah we'll end episode two there with Since I Left You just creeping into the world and people everywhere, even those close to the band like Linda beside us, 
stunned by this new addition to their own musical journeys. I don't really remember the first time I heard it. I feel like it's always been in my life. Um, but I really did realise after the first time I heard it, uh, just the tremendous amount of research and discovery it would have taken to craft an album like Since. I mean, it's just beautifully made. And in a, in a time where they would have had really limited uh, equipment and technology. So I think that's what really struck me. Those, you know, big sounds were invented. And Robbie, you know, he's a genius producer. And there was no limitations, I think, at that time, because he was only thinking about the art. You know, he wouldn't have been thinking about the enormous, you know, sample clearance aspect of it. So it's, it's raw. It's beautiful. Beauty may lie in the eye, or in this case, the ear, of the beholder, but even from the get-go, everyone was feeling the beauty inherent in Since I Left You. We'll farewell episode two with the Avalanche's hit single Frontier Psychiatrist in full, but don't forget to check out part three, in which we delve into how the band reacted to this flood of love, sweeping the arias, the challenges they faced touring their new sonic tapestry, and the even bigger conundrum they had when it was time to follow it up. Mr. Kirk, Dexter's in school. I'm afraid he's not, Miss Birchmore. Dexter's truancy problem is way out of hand. The Baltimore County School Board have decided to expel Dexter from the entire public school system. Oh, Mr. Kirk, I'm an upset as you to learn Dexter's truancy, but surely expulsion is not the answer. I'm afraid expulsion is the only answer. It's the opinion of the entire staff that Dexter is criminally insane. Same, same, same. <laughs>
boy needs therapy. You're a psychosomatic. That boy needs therapy. You're lying down on the couch. Well, what does that mean? You're a nut. You're crazy in the coconut. What does that mean? That boy needs therapy. I'm gonna kill you. That boy needs therapy. Granny Gazoo, let's have it to you. I want to count three. That, 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 that boy, boy needs therapy. He was white as a sheep. And he also made false teeth. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Rewind with Steve Bell. Episode 3 is out soon with a heap more rewinds to follow suit. Hope to catch you again soon. Don't forget to rate and review. Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Treweek and Andrew Marks. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar Bar.